Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation chapter 8. And we're going to read the text at the very end of the message, and we're going to talk the entire time about why this is probably one of the most strategic junctures in the book of Revelation. You know, there's a lot of stuff in Revelation you wonder, you know, if it even affects anything about my life. Because, you know, I'm not going to be here, and I'm not going to face this or that, or, you know what I mean, some of it's uh, in heaven, and, and, and it just... Sometimes you can kind of be going through Revelation and it's kind of off the chart as far as my daily life. This section isn't. Uh, this section, and you can see the title there, The Silence of God. Now I want you to think about parents in a hospital with a child dying of cancer. They've done everything, every friend on earth they know. They love the Lord. They're standing around the bed, weeping and crying for God to answer, and nothing happens. That's what we're talking about, the silence of God. The other half of the equation is the cries of his suffering saints. Now, for the little child, I mean, for them to be released from the pain of this world and instantly in a perfected, glorified body, from our perspective, isn't very exciting for them. They think it's great. Paul said, if you only knew what heaven was like, you'd be like me, you'd want to be there now. But what about the second half this morning? The cries of the suffering saints that are abused, that are horribly treated, that are tortured, that, I mean, that's going on around the world right now. Uh, all of these people that are paying dearly. How come when it's so clear that justice is needed and God is all-powerful and all-knowing and everywhere present and commands everything, why is he silent then? Now you could say, well, because then they're released from their troubles and they'll be in heaven too. But for most people, that is probably one of the two or three, the handful of questions that never seems to, to make sense. How God can be silenced and how saints can suffer so grievously. So chapter 8, that's exactly what it's all about. What we're learning, and there are twin truths that we're going to look at this morning. And if, if you forget everything else, you know, when you're at lunch, you know, some of those places give you a discount if you can tell them what you learned in church. Here you go. Get your discount. Twin truths. We're looking this morning in chapter 8 of Revelation at the destination of our prayers. When we pray, whether it's over your meal this morning after church or, or, or this afternoon, or whether it's on the way home or you're sending someone off or you're starting your day tomorrow, what is the destination? Where do prayers go? That's first thing, Revelation 8. Beautifully. I mean, it doesn't just tell us. It gives us a picture. Second, after we see the destination, how does God act? In other words, what is the application of the prayer? What does God apply to that prayer? How does he do something? What is the response of God? If it gets to the destination, if it arrives where we're going to see graphically it arrives this morning, what is, what's the application of our prayers to everyday life? What is God going to do about that? See, that's, that's why chapter 8, I told you before, the book of Revelation is probably one of the most densely compacted series of doctrines in the Bible. I mean, it is unbelievable every doctrine this book covers, and this is a huge one. The destination of every prayer of every saint throughout all time and how God answers it, how the application of that prayer comes to be. So, this morning, 
As we arrive at the eighth chapter of Revelation, this chapter may hold for us the most impactful truth we've ever bumped into so far in this final book of God's Word. This chapter before us contains the twin truths that explains what has happened for all the thousands of years of all the prayers of every believer and of every saint of every age. And this chapter tells us, number one, the destination, where those prayers arrived. And every time we pray in Jesus' name, that prayer rises before the face of God. If it comes in Christ, if it comes through our great intercessor, whoever lives to intercede for us, it arrives right in front of the face of the Almighty God. And God our Father is seated in the throne room of the universe. He is the Almighty Lord over all. He is the all-powerful, so nothing exceeds his capacity of power. He is the all-knowing. Nothing escaped. It's not like he was blinking and, and missed that one. He's the all-caring. I mean, you think someone cares for you? This person knows everything about us from before we even existed. He designed us. So he is the all-caring. He is the all-loving. In fact, God's, one of his unchangeable attributes is love. And nothing ever shoves that out of the way. He is all-loving in everything he does. He is also the always and everywhere present one. And that's the one we're supposed to unceasingly pray to. In fact, Jesus told us as his followers, we're to always pray. And so now we come to the illustration. Jesus is giving us, for, for all of the centuries people have, have been praying, he's giving us not just words, he's giving us a picture of where did they go. And what did God do with them? This chapter explains prayer. It explains where prayers go, what God does with them, how God answers prayers. How come we don't get an immediately visible response? You know, that's, that's so fascinating. A little bit later into this study we're going to do, and by the way, this is going to, I don't know if you can tell, but it's going to launch us into a little wider area because the book of Revelation gives the picture, but the rest of the Bible gives all of the details of what we're talking about with prayer. In fact, the Old Testament has seven different words for praying. I mean, there isn't just one kind of prayer. God, God has seven different channels. The New Testament is five. Altogether, there are a dozen different ways to pray. And, and as we look at that, what the Lord is telling us is that when something doesn't visibly get responded to, which is probably the most perplexing dilemma for a lot of people, how the all-knowing, all-caring, all-powerful God didn't do something right then. But what all of a sudden we realize is, and that's what prayer does to us, as I said last week, the more we pray, the more we get changed into realizing that I'm only seeing it from this perspective. And I'm only seeing it from this perspective, earthly and just for a short time. But God sees the prayer in light of all time, in light of my duration, in light of his plan, in light of everything I have no idea is going on, and in all of that put together, he says, and this is what I'm going to do. And that's what Revelation 8 is going to illustrate for us. Well, from our perspective, when nothing happens, we see in Revelation 8 what is happening up there where we can't see right now. 
that's at the throne of God. And it's amazing when we see that. But what goes on at the throne, as the writer of Hebrews calls it, it's the throne of grace and mercy. And so always operative is God's grace, which means he gives us what we don't deserve, and God's mercy, which means he doesn't give us what we do deserve. And those two are operating as the prayers come to that destination, the throne. And God begins to prepare to respond and apply his truth into our lives. Well, the mystery of those unanswered prayers is here beautifully explained. And Revelation 8 is all about the silence of God when his suffering saints are crying to him. So how do you reconcile silence from an all-powerful, totally in touch God with the anguishing cries of his saints? Well, silence is always interesting. But silence after a profusion of sounds is deafening. Now, that's an oxymoron, actually, a deafening silence. Those two words don't really, they're incongruent, okay? But when we think about it, that's exactly what chapter 8 is. Chapter 8 stops us short by a deafening period of silence. Now, you say, silence from what? Well, remember, the Bible was carefully orchestrated, and it was given to Christ to give to his church by God to show us one of the most vital connections to the dots of our lives between all the lifetime of prayer and all the things that God has never responded to from our perspective. And that is connected in chapter 8, but it's only connected after this. And, and look at verse 1. I mean, you, you can't, we're not going to read it yet, but just look at it, okay? Don't read it. Uh, when he opened the seventh seal, there was what? Yeah, and guess for how long? About a half hour. Now, that is one of the more stranger verses in the Bible. That, that, it said, that it notes there's silence in heaven, and it notes not precisely, but about half an hour. But that silence, if you step back and look at the context of what's been going on for seven chapters... That silence in verse 1 is deafening. It is so unbelievably, loudly silent for that half hour. Let me show you what I mean. Let's just talk briefly about the sounds of worship in heaven. And I'll give you, go back to chapter 1 and start in verse 10 of Revelation 1. And what I want to show you is what is going on for seven chapters before we have this, this silence. John witnesses in chapter 8, the cessation of all that's going on for seven chapters of Revelation. And it just is shocking. Starting in, 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 uh, in fact, we can go through four sections. Chapters 1 through 3, starting in verse 10. From the first moment on Patmos, on the guided tour that began, remember John begins his guided tour of heaven and, on earth in Patmos, and then he's taken around Asia Minor to look at the churches, and then he goes to heaven. But look at it, it says in verse 10. It says, John felt the sound of Christ's words he described as loud, as a loud voice like a trumpet. Now, that reminds me when I was in college, um, when I was at Bob Jones University, one of the most conservative bastions of the faith in the world, at least they think they are. And uh, when I was down there, there used to be a lot of pranks. And the biggest prankster that got almost expelled from the school, his name was John MacArthur. Now, the reason he didn't get expelled was 
his dad was on the board. And you know, if your dad's on the board, you get away with a lot more. And so John's down there, and he decided there was this Arminian in the school that always was losing his salvation. So John decided he would solve the problem. So he organized all 500 boys in the dorm. That's how many lived in the dorms back then. And he got one with a trumpet, and one with a strobe light, and one with one of those thunder makers from the stage. And he had every boy on the campus bring a pile of clothes and carefully put his shoes, socks in them, drop their pants over, you know, put all their clothes down, even their ball cap, and there were these little, like, evaporated people piles all over. I mean, he had them in the bathrooms, he had them in every room, down the hallway, and this poor guy was a sleeper because he worked all night, and so he was always sleeping, but he always was afraid he was going to miss the rapture. And so John got all 500 boys. They opened every room in the dorm. They all stood outdoors at night. This guy was sound asleep in his dorm. Everyone left their pile, their evaporated body, and they blew that trumpet. I mean, just knocked the guy. I mean, nothing like being sound asleep and having a blast of a trumpet. Then as he opened his eyes, they strobe-lighted him till all he saw was black patches. And they did thunder, and then someone says, Come up here! And the guy stumbles to the window, and you could hear him outdoors. Oh, no! Oh, no! Oh! And he saw all the clothes. And so the moral of that story is, John heard a trumpet, and it was very unsettling. I mean, how would you like someone to come up behind you and blow a trumpet? That's how Revelation opens, and look what it continues. Look at verse 15. And he sound, heard the sound of many waters, like this giant cascade of Niagara. And after that tour, he visits the churches. Look at verse 17. I mean, of chapter 1. After John hears about Christ walking around the lampstands and hears his voice of the trumpet and the voice and sees his face, verse 17 says, he collapses. He faints. The scene that fills that, that opening chapter was so loud, so overwhelming, it just, he lost all strength, and he fell down. It doesn't stop there. He, he goes in chapter 2 and 3. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. After kind of having a quiet tour around the seven churches, after these things, in verse 1, I saw and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice I heard, the voice from back in chapter 1, verse 10, was like a trumpet. Only this time he didn't jump. I mean, he was expecting it. And chapter 4 shows that God's throne surrounded by, look at verse 5, thunderings and voices. The voices of cherubim, look at verse 8. These huge creatures that are glistening and covered with eyes and six wings with four faces have these huge voices that can be echoed all throughout heaven saying, holy, holy, holy loud enough for everybody to hear. So it's kind of like on the loudspeaker system. And then, verse 11, these 24 elders. I mean, they're right up close to the front of, of the, the throne room. And there's the throne of God, and these 24 elders are in a circle around it. And what you hear, and, and I was thinking about the acoustics of heaven are amazing. Because John seems to have been able to hear and distinctly every word of everything. And he could hear, look what it says in verse 11, they are down on their faces, they're face down on the ground, and he can hear precisely, verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord. He could hear every word they were saying. Well, look at chapter 5. It, it introduces a strong angel uh, in verse uh, 1 with a loud voice. In verse 2, the Probably this guy, this, this angel with a loud voice, has to speak over the sound of the holy, holy, holies and all of the thunderings and, and everything else that's going on and the, the, the 24 elders talking. But look what it says. 
there's this strong voice, verse 2, above all the other sounds saying, who is worthy? And then Christ the Lamb steps forward, and look what happens in verses 9 and 10. All 24 of the elders and the, the uh, cherubim, so the flying four, fall down too and get down right on their faces. And look, look what happens in, in verse 9. The elders sing the song, you are worthy. I've always thought that would be fun to have a song service where we all get down on the floor with our faces near the ground and sing like we're going to around the throne. Uh, but they can hear it, and it's going on. And then look at verse 12. It says, and then uh, it's followed after this song with your face on the ground with the voices combined of myriads of uncountable angels plus the cherubim plus the 24 elders, and they say with loud voices, verse 12 says. I mean, did you notice how many times it says loud? That's what I'm talking about, the sounds of worship in heaven. It's loud and, and they're saying in verse 12, worthy is the lamb. And then, if that wasn't loud enough, it says that added in, in verse 13, is the incomprehensible group of every creature in heaven, as if there were any that weren't already making noises, every creature on earth, everything that's in the sea, and everyone in unison says, blessing, see verse 13, glory, or blessing, honor, glory, and power. It's loud, but it doesn't let up. Look at chapter 6. We don't see any quieting of the sounds around the throne. First, we have a cherubim talking like a thunderclap. Verse 1. And he, he, each cherubim follows with this thunderous speaking of come and see. See verse 1, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7. And then the voices of the martyrs, they chime in. And, and they start crying out and saying in verse 10, how long? Wow. Then, after almost six chapters of the sounds of worship, we get introduced to more sounds, the sounds of wrath on the earth. God finally addresses the rebellion of earth directly. Chapter 6 ends, look in verse 16, with a terrifying sound. Now, this is one of the most terrifying sounds in Revelation. It's in verse 16. And it says, every lost human on earth. And so that we don't miss that he means every, there are seven designations. It's every classification of people. It's, it's more detailed than the census forms were. Every classification of people screaming out with terrifying, uh, ear-piercing cries, deadly shrieks for safety from what God is sending on them. They're, they're, try, they're saying, fall on us mountains. And they're climbing, you know, uh, underneath every hole they can find or in any little cave they can find. And then as there's, that shriek goes out, look what continues, starting uh, with the events in verse 12. What scared them in verse 16 are these events. There's a heart-stopping, life-quenching rumble of a megaquake. You ever heard an earthquake? I remember when we lived in California. I mean, we moved out there. We moved from, Bonnie and I moved from gentle, quiet, you know, east, you know, eastern United States, Michigan and New York, to California. 
No one told me that I was risking my life. I knew the people were a little different, but I didn't know about the earthquakes. And we got out there to the earthquakes. We moved in our little house. We had a little baby John, and we had to evacuate our house because the whole house started shaking. And we ran out the door, and we got on the sidewalk. And as I got on the sidewalk, it was, it was like a giant mole was going underneath, and it would lift up, and it would go down. And then I looked, and all the way down the street, as far as I could see, the chimneys of the houses You'd see a chimney get higher, and then the house would go down, and the next chimney would get up. And then the house behind it, as that one sunk, the next house would go up. And I was seeing all the houses down the block going up and down. And then I came to my senses, and I realized you could hear that. I mean, the whole earth, at least in the San Fernando Valley at that moment, was, was grinding and shifting and making... But you know what it says in verse... 12, it says, it's the biggest quake that's ever happened. And the people experience that. And then all of a sudden, meteors start streaking and crashing and blowing up. And there's the piercing claps, clap of the sky splitting. I mean, it's just, it splits apart. And then every land area across the globe starts lurching. It says every spot, kind of what we experienced in many in uh, you know, where we were in, in the valley in Los Angeles, the whole world starts doing that. Those sounds fill the pages of Revelation. And those sounds, both the worship and the destruction, are given by God. And the scene God paints for seven chapters is loud. It's very loud. It's loud like a trumpet blast. It's loud like standing at the edge of Niagara Falls. It's loud like the rolling, booming, shaking of a thunderstorm. In fact, what's presented is louder than anything we could ever imagine because uncountable myriads of myriads and countless waves of angelic and human creatures all speak and chant and sing. And finally, a collection of sounds never before heard on earth and in heaven and earth begin as earth crumbles beneath the weight of God's wrath. And then everything stops. Do you see what I mean by deafening silence? I mean, John's watching and he's hearing and hearing and hearing and hearing in the world and everybody's crying and screaming and shrieking and everything's cracking. And then in chapter 8, for a half hour, you want to make people uncomfortable? Just don't do anything. People cough. I mean, if it gets quiet, they're wondering if they can still hear. I can still hear. It makes people uncomfortable. I mean, you want to sense this. You go to like Carlsbad Caverns or Mammoth Caverns. We took our family both places. They always have this cute thing where you sit on the bench and the park ranger says, everybody hold on, I'm turning the lights off. And you hold on and it's absolutely quiet. And they only do it for a few seconds because people begin to have panic attacks because it's too quiet. Well, it's quiet for half an hour. And that's the silence of God. And all those sounds of heaven and earth were intentionally made a part of the record just as this statement about silence was put in. God is using the contrast to point out what might be the most vital lesson in the whole book of Revelation. You see, I mean, it's neat to look at churches from back then. It's neat to look at John falling on his face and all that other stuff, but what does it have to do with me? I don't have a job, or my child isn't getting better, or my parents aren't getting better, or our marriage isn't getting better, or whatever. And I've prayed about it for so long. 
Can any doctrine be most vital in a book that is so huge, powerful, and overflowing with 22 chapters of Revelation? Maybe. Here is the lesson God's Word sets before us, side by side, the silence of God and the poured out prayers and the cries of suffering of saints throughout all the ages. God shows us two incredible truths and illustrates them for us in a way we can never forget. God shows every one of his saints throughout all of history two things. The destination, where those prayers go, what he does with them, and then the application of those prayers to the events on earth. And God puts those two together. And if we look carefully at the scene in chapter 8 of Revelation, it explains for us one of the greatest mysteries of heaven. We can see how God responds to the prayers of his saints. Prayer is huge in our lives as believers, and it's fitting that here in Revelation, God would give us an all-encompassing teaching about the role, the purpose, and the importance of prayer in our lives. And if that's what we were expecting, we aren't disappointed. Because the Lord does that. Just as Jesus commanded his disciples to pray the disciples' prayer. Now, do you remember that? Our Father who art in heaven. Do you remember when we looked at the stages of that prayer? And Jesus said to his disciples, I command you to follow this route whenever you drive through the pathway of prayer. He commanded. It's one of those imperatives. And he said, this is how you're supposed to start every prayer. Before you even start saying anything, you focus on who you're talking to. The all-knowing, the all-powerful, the everywhere-present, all-caring, all-loving God of the universe that never slumbers or sleeps. Surrounded by holiness, he is hallowed, is his name. And he says, once you do that, you say, before I say anything, I want you to rule in my life, and I want whatever your will is to be done. And then I can start sharing my prayer request. See, that whole setup is what the Lord is emphasizing. And what he says is, I want you to know this. I capture, I get it, I hear it. You know, my kids were showing me something interesting. I always am learning from my children. They're, they're, they're constantly enlightening, Bonnie and I, as old timers. And they were showing us something. They were, with their phones, they were texting. You know, kids text. The average child texts way too much. Uh, they've lost their verbal skills. I mean, they stay up all night, you know, thumbing their phones instead of sleeping. But they showed me something curious. They sent one of their friends a text, and all of a sudden below the text, there's a little balloon and four little dots. I said, what's that? They said, that means that they're looking at it, and they're getting ready to respond. So we watched, and they did this because they knew this person. They knew the person would look at it and not respond and so the four dots came up, and they said, watch. And they left. And there was no reply. And did you know that, as they were showing me that, I thought of countless believers. I mean, a text, you know, goes right to the face of the phone, and they can't miss it. And so they text God, and four little dots come, and God saw the text. And there's silence. See, that's what this chapter is about. What do you do when you text God and he doesn't text you back? What do you do with your text? Well, he says right here, he captures them. This chapter shows how God captures and holds on to every prayer of every saint down through the ages. In chapter 5, verse 8, if you see that, that was two chapters ago, it says he puts them in a bowl. 
And in chapter 8 right here, in verse 3, that bowl is in front of him all the time. It's in front of the throne of God. He captures those prayers. And the scene around God's throne is, is loud and noisy, but God pauses and there's silence, and it's not momentary, but it's for approximately the same amount of time that something happens in the Bible. Let, let me take you to something. See, you see why this is so important? Go back with me to Exodus 30. I want to show you something. You know, you can read, and I do read, and I have hundreds, I actually have thousands of books, and I read dozens on this passage. I read what everyone that ever printed anything about that I have in my 4,500 books that said anything about this chapter. And you know what was fascinating? They all are going on and on, and finally one said, well, if you go back to Exodus 30, you'll figure it out. And so I went back to Exodus 30. Look at Exodus 30 with me, because all of a sudden, if you don't understand Exodus 30, you don't understand what altar is in heaven. I mean, why is there even an altar in heaven? What on earth is God doing with an altar in heaven? I thought altars were in the Old Testament, right? Isn't that what most people say? I know many people. They don't even need an Old Testament. They just carry around a New Testament because that Old Testament stuff, that's just Old Testament. Well, God is still operating on Old Testament stuff. Did you know that? Because he doesn't change. And if it was true and unchangeable, immutable truth, it's still true today, and it's not going to change in the future. And so what he shows us is, way back in Exodus 30, he had this little altar. In fact, I'll show you a little picture of it. Uh, there are a lot of chapters. In fact, there are 25 chapters describing this stuff that's on the screen. It takes two chapters to describe the creation of the entire cosmos and 25 chapters to describe the tent. Now, that means if there's that much of the Bible about it, and if this is what God showed Moses, when he took him up in the mountain, he said, I'm going to have you build this little, this little portable worship center, but I want you to build it exactly like it looks up here in heaven. He showed him the heavenly set of objects. And, and Moses brought down engineering plans to build this thing exactly the way God specified. And, and there's so much. Uh, I mean, look in verse 7 of chapter 30, uh, this little incense altar. And by the way, the incense altar... If you go from the right on the screen, there's the brazen altar, burnt offering, then there's the laver, and then there's this curtain, this wall. You go into this little room, and it has two chambers. The front chamber on the left has the menorah, the golden candlesticks. On the right-hand side, as you're walking through, it has the showbread, uh, the bread of the face, it's called. And then you bump into what we're looking at this morning, that gold dot up there that is in the, the far left of that first chamber is the golden altar of incense. And look down in verse 7. Aaron shall burn on that thing, God said, sweet incense every morning, and look at verse 8, at night, twilight. And so the day of worship in the tabernacle and temple started with the high priest going there or one of his designates and burning incense, and then that smoke rose while they were doing all the other sacrifices all day long. And then the day closed, verse 8, with the twilight. And so, why? Well, just, I mean, we don't have time to, and we will in the future. But what is going on is the tabernacle incense offerings are telling us something. That God's tabernacle layout 
brings us directly in front of the throne. Back on that picture, the wall where the, and, and I'll go back and show it to you, that, that wall on the other side of it was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had this Shekinah glory cloud hovering over the top of it. In fact, when the, when the high priest came in on the Day of Atonement once a year and brought this little vessel of oil, he, I mean of blood, he brought it in and he had to reach under the flame and on top of the box and pour the blood without burning himself from this Shekinah glory cloud of fire that always hovered over that and that was representative of God's presence. So only once a year can anybody get in by God's presence, but all day long, that little golden altar had smoke rising, which was a picture of prayer, which takes us, you see, prayer connects us right to the throne. And so what God is trying to say is that prayer is our, our greatest, most powerful way to lift us before the very face of God. Jesus is our intercessor. He opens the door. That's what all those doors in the tabernacle were. The Spirit of God holds and shapes and edits our prayers. That's what Romans 8 is about. Romans 8 says we don't even know what we should pray for like we ought to, but the Spirit fixes our prayers. See, what we do is we say, God, I want this. And the Holy Spirit says, well, actually, God, what he meant was this. That's exactly what Romans 8, 26 says. Aren't you glad that we haven't gotten what we asked for many times, God fixes them. And the way he does it is Jesus opened the way, the Spirit of God brings the prayer and delivers it right before the presence of God. And that's all three members of the Trinity are totally involved. And so prayer connects us to the throne. But when we connect, why is God silent? Well, we're going to read about that and then we're going to have communion. So, okay. Let's go back to chapter 8. Now it's time to read the text. Now I've drawn enough pictures. Look at chapter 8, and I'm going to read the first six verses, and I want you to see the destination of prayer, and then I want you to see in this instance how God applies an answer to those prayers. It's very graphic, okay? Revelation 8, verse 1 through 6. Let's stand, and we're going to read this, and then we're going to prepare for communion. Revelation 8, verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer filled with the fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. If you caught that, God took all those unanswered prayers that had been building up in that bowl. He had the angels scoop them out. He put them with the incense, with coals from the altar. And as they flamed into smoke, I mean, as the flames caused the incense to burst forth into smoke, the angel walks to the edge and he throws it on the earth and what the Lord is illustrating is he's answering 
centuries, thousands of years of prayers. And those trumpets, there are seven of them, each one, and we'll see this when we come back, each one are a specific answer to what God's saints have cried for justice, for God to intervene. He does. And what's neat is everyone, everyone gets to see the answers to their prayers because we're all there and we'll all finally connect the dots and we'll see God doing what we ask him to do. Let's bow for a word of prayer to prepare our hearts and the men are going to go and prepare to serve us communion. But let's just come before our Father on the throne right now. Father, we bow before you as we stand in your presence. The meditations right now of our hearts are rising to you. Our words that we speak are coming. Spirit of God, you are interceding for us. Lord Jesus, you're opening the way all the way through. And at this instant, the connection is there. And dear Father in heaven, we hallow your name. And because you know everything and because you are all powerful and all wise and and all loving, we say rule in our lives. May your will be done with what we have as a burden in our life about our health, about our family, about our job, about our marriage, about our future, about everything to do with our life. You know so much more and everything you do is perfect. And so we say before we give our request, may your will be done because you see it all. You see it better. You see the end from the beginning. And so we just come and bring our petitions. And Spirit of God, we ask you to translate them into what we really should say. And dear Father, we trust the timing of your answer. And all of that is possible because of the cross where you, Lord Jesus, opened the door to heaven by washing away our sins, forgiving us completely standing by to cleanse us so we can constantly come before you. And I pray at this communion that we would thank you for your body that was given to forever take away our sins as you took our penalty. And I pray that we would worship you as we come before you. Thank you for letting us in. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated as you're seated. The men are going to come and they're going to serve us communion and we're going to sing about Christ's cross and we are going to worship him together this morning. Next stanza talks about how Jesus opened the way through his blood poured out and, and the communion is supposed to be a giving of thanks. And all these reminders, the, the emblems, the, the bread in our hand and, and the words of this song, all are to ignite us to just offer. I mean, make this song part of what rises. You can prayerfully sing it as a worship offering to thank him that he's opened the way. Let's sing that to him. Well, the scripture said that Jesus became sin for us, he who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, that connection to Christ. He is our sacrifice. He is our sin bearer. He is our righteousness. And he said, do this every time you partake of my picture of my body, remembering me. It's all about Christ. Let's remember him together as we partake.
We are so thankful, dear Father, that you silenced heaven for 30 minutes for the length of time it took for an Old Testament priest to go through the process of getting coals from the brazen altar of sacrifice, walking into the holy place, pouring them out on the altar, and then pouring incense over the top and just making sure that that altar was continuing to function. So you made it silent for a half hour to remind us that you hear that there's nothing, that you're not distracted, you're not texting someone else while we're talking. You are listening. And you stopped everything to let us know that your silence means that you're listening and that you have a plan. And you know better than us. And so I pray that as we worship you, especially through this cup this morning, that we would realize that your blood cleanses us, Lord Jesus, from all of our sins, so that we can come, as the writer of Hebrews said, boldly to the throne of grace and mercy, and we can find help even when you're silent. The help is help to trust you more, help to learn to wait, help to believe that you know more than we do, and so we can Find that grace and mercy to help us through our time of need, even when you're silent. And I pray that this cup, this cup of the new covenant, this promise that you have made a forever promise to us, that we will worship you and trust you even when you're silent. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As the men pass the cup, we're going to sing about the only thing that can keep our prayers out, and that's when we don't get cleansed. If we regard iniquity in our hearts, God can't hear us. And so this hymn says there is a, a constant source of cleansing because God wants us to never be out of touch. And so we should be constantly enjoying his precious blood. Let's sing about that fountain this morning. And so it talks about how all of us feel. Sometimes we feel like that you know, the Lord, we can't do anything, and, and it's too late. And the dying thief, I mean, he lived his horrible life, and he had no time to go join the church and get baptized and start helping. And the dying thief rejoiced to see that the blood of Jesus Christ is given graciously. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. We can't do anything to make it better or worse. It's just freely given. And that's what we celebrate this day. There's nothing you can do this morning or ever to make God love you anymore. And there's nothing any of us can do to make God love us any less. He loves us to the hilt. And he says, because of that, your sins, my sins, cleanse them away. Don't let them interfere with your talking to me. And so, like the dying thief, let's rejoice in our forgiveness as we sing. Jesus said, this is the new covenant that's in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Thank you, Lord, for our great salvation, for the great price you paid, and for the unlimited access only disrupted by us when we refuse to forsake, confess, and seek your cleansing.
But when we do, no matter how many steps away from you we've gone, that one step back of confession and repentance and your precious cleansing makes us right there before your face again. I pray that prayer will grow in our hearts today and in the days ahead as we understand how great that open door is in your plan. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. And all of God's people said, amen. Before you go, two things. One is the invitation is always opened. If you are not knowing the Lord or walking with him, there'll be elders and, de- and, uh, and Titus, two women here at the front. Number two, if you've been reading the news, you know we've got six ships off the coast of Syria. Did you know all that's in the Bible? And tonight we're going to start looking at Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, and 39. One of the most graphic, you can see it in the newspapers, fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Anywhere in the Bible, those four chapters. And I'll show you maps and names and history, and it'll be fun. And we're going to see the the fight for Jerusalem that God says it marks the end of days. So it'll be wonderful. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord. See you soon.